verses 10. That's, yeah, verses 10 through 20. <coughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes up for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, you are truly worthy of all praise and glory and honor. God, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. So, God, I pray that, um, that you would make much of yourself through the proclamation of your word this morning. God, I pray that we'd be reminded, uh, that we'd be awakened once again to the reality that we have an enemy who has a mission, who has a strategy, and most importantly, who is defeated. And God, I pray that you would um, also awaken us uh, wherever we're at, God, in our uh, journey as your beloved children, that you would awaken us to, um, to be reminded that we are in a battle and that uh, you have given us um, everything we need in Christ Jesus. We already possess everything we need in Christ Jesus. Um, and the challenge is to <clears throat> daily put it on. So God, I pray that uh, in this uh, massive text that you would give me grace, <clears throat> that you would prepare our hearts to uh, receive it and to uh, desire to uh, live in accordance to it for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning. Um, I've got a bit of a leftover uh, uh, COVID stuff called bronchitis, so I've been feeling great the last couple of days, but on the way here, I'm like, man, I can't talk. I've got stuff in my throat, so I'm just praying for, for God's mercy uh, this morning. Um, how many of you have done Zoom calls in the last nine months? Quite a few of you, yeah. Um, I don't work from home. There was a couple of months where I worked more from home than I ever had. And um, I've got a cough drop in my mouth. Can I, like, chew it for a moment, and you can just, like, plug your ears? Okay, sorry. It's an old, but I had to put it in there. 
we had a conversation, a community group, uh, this last Wednesday about uh, being dressed or not dressed for a Zoom call. And um, there's four of us um, in that room that um, were on Zoom calls quite a bit. Two of them work from home full time. And I asked a question. I said, do you, like, when you get on a Zoom call, um, do you shower? Do you comb your hair? Do you put deodorant on? Um, do you have anything on below the chest? Um, and um, and the, the response from two of the four of us that um, are on Zoom every day is now, like, I just roll out of bed, and uh, oftentimes I don't even have the camera on because they can't see me anyways. And my response was that um, I did that for a little while during COVID, and, uh, like, I felt like a slug. Like, I felt like I totally couldn't engage. Like, I was, it's just not right having a meeting with pastors, um, you know, in my pajamas. And so I said, you know, like, I, it, it feels better for me to actually shower and shave and get dressed. Um, and I'm sure it feels better to the other people on the other side of the, the camera as well. Um, I hope you remember that image today as we talk about taking up the whole armor of God. I want to remind you, if you missed last week's sermon, um, I would encourage you to listen to it. It's foundational um, to understanding this three-week sermon series, and it's foundational for your walk with Jesus and the enemy that we have with the evil one. And what we learned last week is that Satan has a mission. Um, he has a mission, and it's to bait God's people into believing his lies, Satan's lies, and disobeying God's commands. He also has a strategy, and it's simple, and it's to make sin look good. That's his strategy. Uh, he, he tempts us with the promise of more happiness, ful fulfillment, protection, or notoriety. And his strategy then is to have us doubt God and his promises and to believe the lies that uh, feed our comfort and our rights and our lifestyle. And as I prayed, it's also important to remember that he not only does he have a mission and a strategy, but he has a future. And that future um, is um, knowing that even though our enemy rages, he's defeated. And we stand knowing that although he's a roaring lion, he's a defeated foe. Satan's mission is to believe us into, is to bait us into believing his lies and disobeying his commands. Paul tells us that our goal in standing against the schemes of the devil in verse 11 and in verse 13 is to stand and to withstand. That's our goal. Um, he has a mission. He has a strategy. He has a future. And our goal in light of that is to stand or withstand the schemes of the enemy. And to stand means to continually hold our position. Think of it in, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, in light of war. Um, it's not standing and being passive. The idea is not to stand around, but to stand firm, to continually hold our position. It's like it's standing like a deep-rooted oak tree against the winds of Satan's lies, against the flood of his temptation, against the barrage of his accusations. We've been given everything we need in Christ Jesus to withstand the schemes of the enemy. But Paul tells us we must put it on. It's not enough just to have it. We must put it on. We are to uh, take up the whole armor of God. 
Verse 10 tells us um, where uh, the strength comes from to withstand, um, and it's not our own strength. In verse 10, we're, we're commended, or commanded is actually the word, to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. We're literally um, strengthened by the same power, the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. So we have the strength. We um, have everything we need in Christ Jesus. We need to put it on. We need to take up the whole armor of God. And this is not simply a matter of just doing the right thing so we can stand firm against uh, Satan. It's clothing ourselves with the armor that we already possess and that Jesus has already worn in our place. It's God who strengthens us to stand, but we need to avail ourselves and appropriate his strength. And this necessarily and actively and intentionally involves daily putting on the full armor of God. And what God clothes us with is nothing less than the clothing or the armor that he already wore. The armor of God, Christ's armor, is not, the, it's not pristine. It's not clean and shiny and polished. It comes to us already bloodied from his victory. Paul started the final section of his letter to the church at Ephesus with the words, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The suit or the armor, if you will, is in our spiritual closet. We have it. Galatians 3.27 tells us that we are already clothed in Christ. Yet other passages instruct us to put on the new man, to put on the clothes. We see that in Romans 13, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, put on the new self. So we have the new identity. We're already clothed in Christ, yet we're to put it on. What might Paul mean? Yes, you by faith may be in Christ and therefore already possess everything needed for life and godliness, but paradoxically, you need to put it on in order to live the victorious and abundant life that Jesus promised us. Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, had a superpower. And he, uh, in the beginning, he wore a handmade suit that was not powerful enough to defeat his enemies. And then Tony Stark gave him a better suit that enabled him to access all of the superpower that was already in him to defeat any enemy. Nancy and I just watched the Spider-Man movies. They're really cool. Then there came, a, uh, there came a time in the second movie where Peter wanted to leave the suit at home and go on vacation with his friends to Europe and not be, in, not be bothered with getting dressed so he could just enjoy life and not worry about all the enemies. Thankfully, when he arrived in Europe, his aunt had packed a suit. Otherwise, it would have been disaster because the enemies were not just in America, whatever city it was he lived in, but they were in Europe as well. You see, putting on God's armor is simply taking what God has so richly supplied in his son and putting it on and then submitting to it. We already have it. We need to put it on and then we need to actually submit to it. In verse 13, Paul says, therefore, after saying that we have an enemy, he says, therefore, since we have an enemy with a mission to destroy and a strategy to bait and tempt us, we need to arm ourselves with the resources that God has given us to fight and stand firm against our enemy, 
Remember the wording that he uses in verse 13? In the evil day. And the evil day is any day because we have an enemy who hates us, who's seeking to destroy us. But we've been given what is needed to continue hold, continually hold our ground against the attacks of the enemy. The Lord, left, uh, the Lord has not left his people, you and I, defenseless. We have the complete armor of God from head to feet, head to foot, which consists of a belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet, and the sword and the sword. And if you are a note taker, uh, there's really several sections here to um, take note of. Um, and that are, that's specifically divided by the armor resources. The first is the truth of God's word. Um, I'm combining verse 14 and verse 17 because I think it's an easier way to teach it. Number one is the truth of God's word that we need to put on. Two, we need to put on his righteousness. Three, we need to put on the gospel of peace. Four, we need to put on faith. And five, we need to put on the hope of salvation. Our battle against Satan, our job in this battle is to get dressed, to wear what God has already given us. Martin Lloyd-Jones highlights our need to wear the whole armor of God at all times with this fascinating quote. <clears throat> if you're to be a soldier in this army, if you're to fight victoriously in this crusade, you have to put on the entire equipment given to you. That is a rule in any army. You cannot select which parts of your uniform you're going to put on. If you say, I don't think it's going to suit me. I don't quite like that. You know exactly what will happen to you. And that is infinitely more true in the spiritual realm and warfare with which we're concerned. The moment you begin to say, I need this helmet, but I do not need this breastplate, you're already defeated. You need it all, the whole armor of God, because your understanding is inadequate. <clears throat> it is God alone who knows your enemy, and he knows exactly the provision that is essential to you if you're to continue standing. Every part and portion of this armor is absolutely essential. And the first thing you have to learn is that you are not in a position to pick and choose. Paul begins and ends this description of the armor with two related ideas. So as I mentioned, I'm going to rearrange the order a bit for the sake of this short sermon. By the way, there are books written on these five verses, and we're going to cover it in about 40 minutes. I'm going to start with combining the belt of truth in verse 14 and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in verse 17, because these two are forever and importantly connected. The truth of the word of God. The belt of truth is a soldier's foundational garment. Um, they would bind their belt around themselves in preparation for activity. Why would they do that? They wore long flowing robes in times of peace. And if they were to um, fight with the long robes, they would get tripped up. Um, so they would take the robe and they would tuck it inside their robe that would enable them to run without being tripped up. Trying to wage war without their robe tucked in the belt would be like me trying to fight with my pants around my ankles. It can't be done. The belt is also where the soldier's only offensive weapon was sheathed, the sword. Today's war involves drones and long-range missiles, but obviously that wasn't the case back then. In fact, they were, their battle was face-to-face, -face and it was eyeball-to-eyeball. -eyeball. Sure, there were archers, there were javelin throwers, there were slingers who could kill from 50 yards, but most of the fighting was done at close range with swords and cudgels. The sword was around 18 inches long. It wasn't the big old long sword like a lot of our kids have in their bedroom, on their bedroom walls. It's a little eight, about, the, about the size of a paper towel holder. 
and it would hang in the sheath off their belt. In the same way that the belt was foundational to the, to the soldiers standing firm and not getting tripped up, the belt of truth is a critical foundation for the believer uh, for, as we withstand the lies and attacks of the enemy. I also found it fascinating and compelling that the belt of truth holds the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The belt of truth holds the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remembering Satan's mission to bait God's people into believing his lies and disobeying God's commands, the knowledge, the application, and the empowerment of the truth that is found in the Bible is what we need to stand in obedience. Therefore, the foundational armor the Christian needs to wear is the belt of truth, and if the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not fastened to the belt, the truth is not certain, and we can't have confidence that our truth is actually truth. Truth should guide our actions. And the word of God should inform our truth. And the spirit of God empowers obedience to that truth. Truth guides our actions. The word of God informs our truth. And the spirit of God empowers obedience to that truth. The Christian truth is not just a truth. It is the truth. It's not enough just to know the truth, though. We need to put it on. We need to wear it. James 1.22 and verse 25 says this, be doers of the word, not hearers only. You see, a hearer of the word is one who has the, um, the armor, the, the belt of truth, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, has it in their closet. They hear it, and they know it, but they don't wear it. They don't put it on. But do, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, the one who sees it in the closet and puts it on, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in their doing. You see, putting on the belt of truth and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not simply hearing and knowing the truth, but it's obeying the truth. And that's a word that we need to hear constantly. It's putting it on. In the highly spiritual movie, The Matrix, they said it's not just knowing the path, it's walking the path. It's not just knowing the path, but it's walking the path. You see, putting on the truth of God's word fights the lie that disobedience to God's word is the way to a joyful life. It's the opposite. The way to a joyful life is putting on the truth, the belt of truth, and picking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, when we walk in the truth, we'll not be easily tricked by the one who twists the truth. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 tells us how obedience is life-giving, and disobedience leads to misery, actually. Listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Does anybody's soul need to be revived today? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Is anybody pining for more joy today? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. 
the more we understand the truth of God's inspired word, and the more we submit ourselves to it by the power of God's spirit, the stronger we'll stand against Satan's lies. However, newsflash, in order to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we need to pull it out of the sheath. It's not, it's, we, we don't like, like hold the Bible up in the, in the movies and they be gone, Satan. We need to know the word of God. We need to put it on and have the spirit of God empower us to live it. We need to wield the sword at all times. You know why? Because truth leaks and Satan deceives. I can spend 15 hours preparing a message like this. And if I'm not getting fresh bread on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of next week, by Friday, the truth is leaked. And Satan is deceiving. And I want to encourage you, like I, I thought about this on the way here, like, like, like none of this is to be um, felt, you should feel guilty about. This is a matter of life and death. We live by every uh, word that comes from the mouth of God. Like, this is our lifeblood. We need to fill our minds and hearts with the truth of God's word so we can stand against the lies. We need to wear God's word repeatedly during peacetime so that when the onslaught finally hits, we're fully prepared. It's, you see, we, it's hard to pull out the sword in the midst of battle if we haven't held it and practiced with it in times of peace. You don't want to get a hang of the sword during the height of battle. You see, oftentimes our Bibles remain closed when there doesn't seem to be much trouble or conflict, but the sword in its sheath is no defense in the same way that your belt that's hanging in the closet won't keep your pants up. We must know his word. And we must ask the Spirit of God to strengthen us with a deep and resolute desire to obey his word. We need to, we need to pray that the Spirit of God would empower us to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So believer, put on the truth of God's word. Don't just know it. Don't just know it's there. But put on the truth of God's word. Next piece of armor is the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was worn over the chest and would protect all the vital organs. Where, where one poke into the heart would bring, would bring instant death. The breastplate of righteousness is the piece of armor that reminds us of how God sees us and how we're to respond to him. It reminds us to live out of our identity rather than living for an identity. The breastplate reminds us of who we are and how we're to live because there's two vital lies the enemy has for us that the breastplate protects. Number one lie, God doesn't really love you or forgive you. Number two is that sin doesn't really matter. You see, a right understanding of Christ's righteousness and your righteousness is critical to withstand in the evil day. The Christian life, I'll say it again, is not a set of, of, of do's and don'ts or accomplishments that we put on. Rather, it's something we already have been given in Christ Jesus, and we need to wear it, and righteousness is no exception. In Isaiah 64, God said Israel's best righteousness is what? It's like filthy rags. 
And then Paul said in the New Testament that our good works, our best, is like filthy garments. The point is, is that our righteous deeds won't protect us from God's wrath. That's the gospel. And our righteous deeds will not protect us against the devil. The breastplate defends us forever against God's wrath because we are in him. It's his breastplate. It's his righteousness. So we can say with Paul in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God intervened into the world in order to, to make sinners the righteousness of God. By faith, his perfect righteousness and holy obedience is credited to our account. If there's like a favorite passage um, for this church, because I've heard different um, pastors and communicators of God's word use it time and time again, including myself, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. If there's ever a verse to commit to memory, if you don't have anything memorized, it's this. It's for our sake, for your sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. The perfect one became our sin. He took on all of our sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when we believe Christ's righteousness is credited to our account, our account is drained of all the debt, and we become clothed in all the riches of Christ, in his perfect righteousness. And this, this righteousness, this awareness, this putting on the righteousness that we already possess protects us when the devil attacks us. He attacks the core of our being, trying to influence us to live defeated lives of guilt and fear and anxiety and depression and discouragement. When we're accused by the evil one and we got the breastplate of righteousness on, we can say with Paul what Paul said in Romans 8, 33 through 34, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of the Father, who's indeed interceding for us. Conversely, it also means that the righteousness that comes through the cross does not allow us to take our sin lightly and just shrug it off. The opposite is true. Knowing what Christ won for us on the cross should motivate us. It should compel us to strive in his strength towards obedience. Because obedience is the garment that fits perfectly on the believer. If we're not constantly mindful of our righteous standing in Christ, or if we're not striving to live righteously um, by God's strength, we become easy targets for the adversary. So Christian, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Next piece of armor is in verse 15. It's the gospel of peace. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I'm a shoe guy. Some of you know that about me. And for me, when I buy shoes, if I was, a, if it was, if it was like correct and I was a more secure man, I'd have a closet just for shoes. But when I buy shoes, three purposes. Number one is that the shoes got to serve a purpose. Number two They've got to be comfortable. And number three, most of you think is number one for me, it's got to look good. Purpose, comfort, and looks in that order. And I think you'll all agree that what we put on our feet is important. Have you ever gone on a hike with boots that just don't fit right? Have you ever tried to play football or soccer? 
on the turf with slippery shoes with no, no cleats. Have you ever gone skiing with ski boots that are two sizes too small? What we put on our feet is important. The Roman soldiers' feet, what they put on their feet was also important for them to stand firm. Their feet were shod or fitted with sandals that were strapped tightly with, with leather around their shins. And on the bottom of those sandals were, were studs or cleats, if you will, that helped the soldier with balance and to stand firm so that he wouldn't get, get tripped up or slip. The spikes helped them hold their position continually in the worst of conditions. In the same way, we're to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the question is, is what in the heck does that even mean? Does putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace mean to stand in the gospel like Paul encourages believers to do in 1 Corinthians 15? Paul says the gospel that you heard, the gospel that you believed, to stand in that gospel. Is that what he's talking about here? Or is it instructing Christians to go out with the gospel? Are we to stand in the gospel, ready to stand in it, or to go out with it, or both? Does he mean the readiness given by the gospel of peace or the readiness to spread the good news that brings peace? I would submit to you that's both. To go with it and to stand in it. And to go with the gospel, the first place we go is to other believers. And I've seen this a lot lately. Um, that when um, that we live in such a cancel culture, whatever that might mean to you, we, we live in that. When somebody has hurt us or harmed us, we just write them off. When somebody doesn't um, like us uh, or what we put on Facebook or whatever, we, we, can, we can defriend them, which isn't all bad. We've been reconciled to the Father through the gospel, and we're to be ministers of reconciliation, bringing the peace of the gospel to relationships where you've been sinned against or maybe where you've sinned against the other person. That's what the gospel does. It reconciles. So we're going to be ready to go with the gospel of peace when we know that we've sinned against somebody else. To go to them, not wait, like go now and make things right. And when we know that somebody has sinned against us, we're to go before the Father in prayer and to forgive that person. If you know, go. Let that just guide you. If you know, go. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Don't delay or cancel, or cancel, excuse me, go to your brother. The enemy wants to destroy the church. Big C church and little church. And the, one of the primary ways he destroys it is when we have bitterness in our heart against fellow believers or other, even other human beings that are not believers yet. The gospel of peace preserves the unity in the body of Christ. Number two, we're to go to unbelievers. We're to take the gospel of peace to those who have yet to hear it and or believe it. And in doing this, we assault the, Satan's kingdom and we tell men and women who are under his power, Satan's power, that spiritual freedom can be theirs in Christ Jesus. Jesus wore these gospel shoes first. He came not only to herald the good news, but to fulfill it and to accomplish it. It was through his death and resurrection that we have peace with God. And it's the same gospel that informs us to have peace with other people. And then, yes, we are to stand in the gospel. 
This allows us to say, when we stand in the gospel, it allows us or compels us to say with the hymn writer in the evil day that it is well with my soul. We too often think that we can move past the gospel to deeper things. But the truth is there's nothing deeper than the gospel. It's inexhaustible, and it reminds us of who we are, who we were before Christ saved us. It reminds us of the cost of the rescue. It reminds us of how he sees us now as beloved sons and daughters. When we're not rooted in the gospel of peace, we're unstable, and we're easy to trip up by the enemy. So believer, put on the gospel of peace. Next article of clothing or armor, if you will, is in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Unlike the, the round, small buckler that infantry carried, this large, heavy, rectangular shield was, um, it was called a door. It was four to six feet high, and it was two to three feet in width. And as that shield protected um, the soldier in combat, so also, he, also faith protects us, Paul says in verse 16, in all circumstances. From whatever lies the devil might launch at us. However, we're only protected in all circumstances when we put it on. When our faith is ongoing and active. The faith that Paul's talking about here is not just, hey, keep the faith. Keep your chin up. Everything's going to be okay. Just a, just a blind faith. I'm not even sure. I think we got one in our house, actually. should talk to my wife about it. But it just says faith. I mean, that's okay if you know the context of that. But what does that even mean? Like faith in what? If you guys have one of those signs and you're planning on inviting us over for dinner, you don't need to take that down. I'm not judging you. The shield of faith is an abiding yet imperfect trusting in God and in all of his promises. It's faith that points our eyes and sets our minds on the promises of God and not on our circumstances. The object of our faith is important. Faith simply divined is this. It's a conviction of the known truth and a solid confidence that springs from that conviction. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, we're told to actually take up the shield of faith. It's, it's easy to forget God's promises and become fearful and discouraged and discontent and anxious or depressed by the enemy's flaming darts of temptation, especially in the midst of trials. And I'm just wondering how many of us could, might overcome fear and anxiety and discouragement if we would only take God at his word, if we would just believe in his promises. It's our faith that extinguishes the flaming darts, the lies of the enemy. When by faith we recall passages like 1 John 4, 4, we're strengthened to fend off the fiery lies of the evil one. Little children, you are from God and, and have overcome them, the enemies. For he who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. Faith involves fleeing from temptation while clinging to God for refuge and help. It's knowing that God is in complete control and will continue to save us even when the world is completely out of control. It's faith that knows he's faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful. And it's faith that causes us to honestly cry out, God, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? 
because our faith is imperfect. This astounds me in Luke 22, where we see that Jesus didn't pray that Peter would not be sifted by Satan, but that his faith would not fail when he was sifted. Listen to this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Well, I would expect Jesus maybe to step in and go like, I'm not going to let Satan do that. In verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So, so uh, I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. And when your faith doesn't fail, or even maybe when you do fail, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him in this famous verse, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you don't know me. You see, God knows that we're fallible. He knows that we still are in these flesh suits. But he also gave us the resources to walk by faith and not by sight. He gave us the shield of faith. So we need to put it on. It takes practice. And finally, in verse 17, we're to take up the helmet of salvation. As a soldier's helmet protects his head in battle against enemy fire, so the helmet of salvation spiritually protects our minds against Satan's attacks. The mind is the major battlefield. It's where Satan does his tempting. We're told to take the helmet. In other words, to receive it like somebody's giving it to us. As a soldier in physical war girds himself with body armor and the officer hands him his sword and his helmet were to take it and put it on. It wasn't clear what uh, the helmet of salvation was, but Paul gives us some help, actually. That's why it's important to know the whole counsel of God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul tells us that it is the hope of salvation. That the helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. The Christian helmet is his or her sure hope of a final salvation. That he'll bring us all the way through. Once again, Jesus wore it first. Jesus knows what it is to endure trials and suffering while keeping his hope in the promise of the Father intact. Even though we forget our hope, particularly in the midst of trials, we can be encouraged by the writer of Hebrews to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, working all things together for good and preparing a place for us. He'll see us all the way home. Our salvation has been accomplished by Christ. And all that awaits us uh, uh, is the full harvest of our already but not yet salvation. Our hope of a sure and future salvation should strengthen us. It should sustain us. It should support us in the midst of any trial, in all trials, including the last enemy, death. If death won't separate you from the love of God, certainly no temporal trial will. A commentator with the last name of Gurnall, G-U-R-N-A-L-L, says this. Take the helmet of salvation so as never to lay it down until God takes it off and puts on a, on a crown of glory in its place. And tell them, believer, put on the helmet of salvation. 
So I want to wrap up with a reminder. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That you have, believer, if you know Jesus Christ, you have God's spirit that indwells you. It's a reminder. It's a seal that you belong to the Father. And it's a strength and a power that will see you through any and every trial. But we need to avail ourselves of it. It's not a hostile takeover. We are in Christ, but we need to clothe ourselves with Christ. So take up the whole armor of God. Put on the truth of God's word. Put on righteousness. Put on the gospel of peace. Put on faith. And put on hope. And just, um, I don't want to get overly practical, but I, I feel like we need to. Because I feel like at times we haven't done a good job in this church like even giving you the resources and helping you to, what does even know? How, how do I even um, spend time in the Word? How do I put that Word on? How do I put righteousness on, hope on, faith on, hope on? And I just, right from the very beginning, spend private time in the Word. Spend, spend time in the Word. If you, if you want to know how to do that, you don't have a plan, talk to me or one of the other pastors. Talk to your community group leader. Um, consider memorizing Scripture. That's something that um, I had a practice of doing years ago, and I haven't done it in a long time, quite frankly. Truth leaks, and it's good to memorize it. It's good to, to have it, as, as the, the psalmist says, to hide it in our heart. Uh, number two is, is uh, spend time in intentional, set-aside prayer, communion with the Lord. Say, God, I believe, but help my belief, unbelief. Spirit of God, would you empower me? to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh today. Number three, sit, uh, sit regularly under the teaching of God's Word. Sit through series like this. We're going to be teaching through 2 Corinthians coming up on, starting on January 31st, 24 weeks. Don't just pop in for a sermon here and there and, and hear little snippets. Understand the heart of Paul and the heart of God in entire books of the Bible. And last, fellowship with other believers. The enemy um, when, we're, when we're alone, um, the enemy has a heyday with us. And that doesn't mean just showing up at a community group once a week and having a good meal and, you know, talking about things that we all enjoy, whether it be hunting, fishing, uh, football. I guess we don't enjoy football so much this year. Baseball, whatever it is. But actually fighting sin together. Like, brother, sister, what is it that's tripping you up this week? What is it that you're not believing? What kind of lies is the enemy feeding to you? be in fellowship with other believers. Next week, uh, we're going to finish this series, and we're going to actually talk about that a little bit. How do we stand in the gap uh, for other believers? How do we fight this battle on behalf of other believers? And then how do we fight the battle on behalf of those who have yet to come to Christ? That's what the final part's about. Would you pray with me? God, you're good, and you're great, and you are greatly to be praised. And, uh, Lord, I thank you that uh, the battle's been won, the war's been won, as Stephen said, uh, yet we are in these little skirmishes with Satan. And we thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love, uh, that, um, that before uh, you arrested us, before you regenerated us, before you turned our heart of stone to a heart of flesh, God, we were enemies. Uh, we were rebels headed in the other direction. But you, in your mercy and kindness, um, made us alive in Christ Jesus. And you gave us your spirit that will give us, uh, get us all the way through. And praise be to God 
that you gave us your life-giving, transforming, and holy word uh, that um, reveals who you are and who we are. We thank you that you'll see us all the way through. So, God, I pray that you would awaken us. Um, we'd not be guilted into any of this. God, there's, that's, that's the enemy's ploy. But that, God, we would want to live um, and enjoy the abundant life you promised that we would want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because, not because we get anything more, our closet's full, but because we already possess everything in Christ Jesus. So would you give us the strength, would you give us the urgency to put on the full armor of God for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen.